Well, we said last week, if you are just joining us this week, that uh, we want to try to understand and to see what this book, this book of Leviticus, might have to say to us. And so we are considering it all semester long. We said last week that Leviticus, while it may appear on the surface as a rather dull and dry book, it is actually chocked full of very important and relevant information for you and for me. Whether you're a, a Christian or not, I don't, I don't know where you are tonight. We don't at RUF assume that everybody here has their faith figured out. This is certainly a place where if you do not know what to make of God, you are welcome here. Uh, you will never be asked to sort of just toe the party line here. This is a place for you to be. I don't assume that. The bottom line is, is that Leviticus does have something to say even to you as well. But before we begin to look at Leviticus chapter 1, I want to share with you one of my greatest joys in life, and that is my father-in-law. This is Laura's dad, uh, and I love this man. He is a dear man to me, and he loves our family in amazing ways, so I'm not going to throw him under the bus. If you knew him, he would not, he, he's, in, he's being, he loves that I'm saying to this, this to you right now, trust me. Um, but if you were to gather around Laura's family at dinner time around the holidays, uh, you would find us all laughing at and with him. He always finds himself in these crazy situations that are just uncannily hilarious. Um, but uh, I want to share a couple of stories with you about him. You will probably hear more of them as the semester goes. Uh, but here is one of my favorites of him. Several years ago, when Laura's next to youngest brother, Adam, was in middle school, uh, her dad took Adam and one of Adam's friends from St. Louis, where they live, into Virginia to do a tour of the Civil War battlegrounds in that state. Uh, and as they sort of drove around from battleground to battleground, uh, you know, they would learn different facts about the, the different sites. Well, on one particular day as they were driving, they, were, they pulled their, they'd flown in, they pulled their renter, rental car up to the gas station, filled the tank up, and at, uh, as they were filling up for the gas, they were done, Laura's dad, Rand, went uh, into the gas station to pay for the gas, grab a few snacks, and then uh, he walked out. And what he did is he got into the driver's seat of the car and began to put the key into the ignition. Um, he began to be rained down on with blows from the old lady in the seat next to him. Why? Because he got in the wrong car that looked exactly like his rental car at the gas station. And some old lady was literally said, what are you doing here? Get out of my car! He wasn't paying attention. But um, the, the, the reason I sort of raised this is that Adam and, her fr- and his friend, as they were watching this, you could tell immediately that there was a problem in that car. It's understandable. Here's a strange man. He just got in my car. I have no idea what he's about to do with or to me. But the point is, is that that old lady knew that there was a problem. And I just want to suggest to you tonight that the way Leviticus starts is that it does the same thing, and that is it assumes that there's a problem, that we got a problem. And so tonight we're going to look at that. Tonight we're going to look at that problem and how that problem actually gets remedied through perhaps the oddest of ways through the sacrifice that we read Leviticus assumes that something is so problematic with 
not only us and the world, that only, listen to this, that only spilled blood, does that sound grotesque to you, can take care of it. So we're going to look tonight at Leviticus and the problem of sacrifice. Now, I certainly don't mean the sacrifice itself, but I mean, the, the, I mean what the sacrifice shows us about the problem. We're going to look at the problem from three different vantage points. Man's problem, the substitute's problem, and then lastly, God's problem. So the man's substitute and God's problem. Here's what I want you to see tonight. I want you to see God's grace on display to you. And I think that this text tonight comes as a a severe uppercut to us and then also a severe balm. So are you ready? Will you listen? I think it's wonderful. Let's give ear to it. The first thing that we begin to see is our problem. Now, before we actually get into this uh, text, we need to understand a little bit about what's going on. I said earlier that Leviticus assumes that there is a problem. So we need to ask the question then, what is that problem? Now, I am going to talk about some things that might make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, but it needs to be said to understand this text. The book of Leviticus assumes a story, as we talked about last night, last week rather, that God created man and that all was good and perfect, but man sought to um, make himself king of the universe. And when he did, rebelled against God, entering into what we call sin. Now that word is a little bit taboo and perhaps you kind of cringe when you hear it and think that it, be, that it might be uh, antiquated or dated or a bit repressive. But I want you to understand that even um, if you disagree with that notion, you can't make sense of the book of Leviticus without it. So let's talk just a little bit about what sin is. In the Bible, sin isn't just breaking God's laws, which it certainly is, but sin is also spoken of about who we are. It's, it's not just that we sin by breaking God's laws. It's that you and me at our core are sinners. That's the way the Bible speaks about us, and that's incredibly problematic. Why? Well, the news gets worse. As if to add salt to the wound, this text assumes, assumes something about God and that He is holy. Now, holiness is a bit of a weird word if you've not really considered it. It kind of sounds like a church word like sin does. But holiness just simply means set apart. It means other. It means not me, so to speak. And the the Lord Himself says this in Leviticus chapter 19, later in the book, where He says, For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Now, why is this problematic? Well, here's why this is problematic. Because throughout the Scriptures... Whenever you see man in God's presence, it's really, 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 listen to me, bad news. Because man can't stand to be in the presence of God without man dying. If you think about what happens in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord. What does he say? He says this, Woe is me, I'm undone. Why? Because he knows he has caught a vision of the Lord's holiness and the only proper response is for Isaiah to actually die. Do you see the problem? Do you feel it getting worse? Well, it goes further down. The problem increases because God is a just God. 
He must punish sin. You see, if He were to just sweep sin under the rug, like we might want Him to do, that would compromise His just character. Imagine a judge letting an innocent man go. Nobody would like that. Imagine a judge condemning an innocent man. Sorry, you know what I mean. Imagine a judge letting a guilty man go. That would not be good. Imagine a judge not... You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm getting at. I'm getting confused. Stick to the notes, Ryan. Um, But here's what this means is, is that because he is just, he must punish sin. Now, we think, gosh, Ryan, it's so heavy. Like, lighten up. I'm telling you, we're going down first. We'll come up. we got to go down first. And so what does God make of this sin? And here's the big word. It's the W word. That God's disposition towards sin is that He hates it. That it's extremely, uh, it has extreme displeasure to it. And the word that the Bible uses is the word wrath. That's heavy. I don't like saying it. But that's what the Bible talks about. Because that is God's disposition to it. And because of sin, we are captives to it like we're held in a prison. We are captives. That's a key word for where we're going tonight. But listen to what the Scripture writer says from the book of Romans, chapter 6. It says, for the wages of sin. In other words, sin has a paycheck. And do you know what it is? It's death. That's what it says. Sin is a massive, massive problem. I just say this tonight so that you will begin to see that unless you understand that man's problem is that he is sinful before an infinitely holy and just God because he has sought to make himself king of the universe, you will not understand what I'm going to say next. Before we go there, can I drive this home a little bit? Um, You need to know the bad news before you know the good news. Here's what I mean. Think about a physician, a doctor, coming to you. When you go to see him, he's taken a CAT scan of your chest cavity. And uh, he comes back to you after the radiologist report comes to him. And the radiologist report says there is stage 4 cancer through the lungs, the liver, and the heart. Is it a good and kind thing for the doctor to say to you, don't worry about it? It's just heartburn. You can go home. For him to not give you a proper diagnosis is not a kind thing at all. It's actually an evil and wicked thing. But it's bad news. If you were to think about that as well, think about this. Do you know that rabies, yes, crazy rabies, is caused by a virus? That is 100% fatal. It kills everybody it touches. Now, the good news is, is that the vaccine for rabies is 100% effective in curing it. But, but, that cure means nothing if you don't know about the bad news of where you're at. I can tell you, I can tweet, hey, they found a cure for cancer. And you might go, that's cool. I'll retweet, hashtag, cancer sucks, or whatever. But, but if you've got cancer, 
you've now just experienced that good news in a totally different way because you know it to be true about you. This text is telling us that before the gospel will be sweet to you, it must be bitter. It must go down. If it aches you to hear me say this tonight, you're actually in great company. Here's why I love Christianity. Christianity does not pull any punches. It is a straight-up religion. It always tells you the way things are. It invites you into incredible honesty. And I want to suggest to you tonight that perhaps some of you who have known about the Bible and about Christianity for a long time, perhaps some of the reasons that Christianity feels so irrelevant to you and there doesn't seem to be any power in it is because you're not able to swallow the bitter pill of what's true about you and me. And that is, left on our own, left on our own, God's incredibly intense displeasure is against us. That is not fun for me to say, but it's actually what's true. Man's problem, there it is. Unless you understand it, you can't understand where we're about to go next. So, let's take a look at this. If our sin holds us captive to God's displeasure, then what, if any hope, is there for us? We've seen the problem. Is there a solution? And that takes us to where we want to go next. And that is the substitutes problem. I want you to see in this text, we can turn our eyes to the Bible now, but before we talk about the substitutes problem, it would be helpful if you understand what's actually going on in the text that we read. So let me explain this to you, okay? Um, Hang with me. This first chapter of Leviticus is the first of five sacrifices that the book of Leviticus talks to us about. And it's called the burnt offering. That's what we read tonight, the whole burnt offering. The whole burnt offering was existed in three different ways. You could have a bull, which is what it's talking about here, a cow. Secondly, the offering could be a, something from the flock, either a sheep or a goat. Had, both had to be male. Or thirdly, uh, it was a, an animal like a bird, uh, a pigeon, or a turtle dove. Now, why those gradations of animals? It was actually to say that um, there is nobody that is to be left out because of economic circumstances. That God cares for the poor as well as the rich. Now, what is going on, though, in this, in this event? Well, the, the worshiper would have brought their animal that they wanted to sacrifice into the courtyard of this big tent called the tabernacle. And they probably would have told the priest that this is going to be a burnt offering. And in that moment, the worshiper would have pressed his hands on top of the, uh, of the, um, uh, the animal. Um, and that was a way of identifying with the animal. Now, what would have happened next was the worshiper would have um, handed the priest over, if it were a bird, if it were an animal like a bull or a sheep or a goat, the worshiper would have uh, slit the throat or somehow uh, drained the blood from the animal and would have begun to uh, dismember and to cut the animal up to give to the priest. The priest would have taken that animal, placed it on this altar, and burned it up. And it was a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, that's really interesting because in contrast to other sacrifices, the worshiper gets to take home some of the meat and eat it and feast on it together. But that will be uh, another sermon for another time. I just want you to begin to see that what's happening here is that the worshiper, as he places his hands 
on the animal, he is saying, that animal should have been me. And that animal's life acts as a substitute. The substitute is innocent. It has done nothing wrong. But it, as it were, bears the penalty of that displeasure that God has. What is it? His life is shed. And if you were to have gone in the temple, you would have known immediately that that animal's blood should have been whose? Yours. But that animal was a stand-in for you. On Saturday mornings, my siblings and I, when we were growing up, loved uh, to do this. We loved to get up and watch uh, like old school WWF. And so uh, I can remember some of our favorite wrestling teams were always like these, I mean, wrestling matches were always these tag team bouts. And my sister of the three of us, she loved it the most, which was hilarious. But anyways, bottom line is, there were always these dramatic moments in these tag team wrestling matches where these guys would get beat up. They'd get slammed around and they would try to like tag the partner and there would be a camera like close up of their fingers, you know, like, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen it? Like they can't, and they're just, and then, you know, they get beat down, they can't do it again. And they kind of get up and they get it and then they, boom, tag. And them in their exhaustion, in their beat down, they were out and the new fresh life was in and the crowd went crazy. I just want to suggest to you that that's what's happening there. That the hand has been tagged. And the animal goes in for you and for me. Now listen to what one one, uh, professor says about this. This is a beautiful, wonderful quote that I think helps us. Jay Sklar says this, Sacrifice was indeed something the Israelites gave to the Lord. Listen. But it was first and foremost something He granted to them in His grace as a means of atoning for sin and achieving the forgiveness they so desperately desired. That is wonderful, because what it is saying is this, that even though the sacrifice was a gift from the people to the Lord, it was still the Lord's grace that accepted it. The Lord did not have to do that, but in His kindness, He accepted the sacrifice. That is going to be key for where we're going. But before we do, I would like to maybe drive this home very, very quickly. Some of you all, and I know what this is like, are trying to do life with your hands off of the substitute. You're trying to do the Christian life without identifying with the substitute that God has given you. And so what that means is, is that you're going to the altar. Let me step back for a moment and get off my metaphor, okay? Here's what I mean. Don't raise your hands. How many of y'all feel like to do the religious life feels like utter death to you? Is it restful? Is there joy? Or is there only burden? Do you view it as nothing more than a set of moral codes to keep, a series of rules to be kept, to stay away from all the bad things and go do good things like mission trips. 
or go to RUF. Because if you think that it is that that keeps you in good graces with God, you're living with your hands off the substitute. You're still trying to be the one that pleases God, and it won't happen. I just want to say this to you tonight. Listen to me. If you are spiritually worn out, busted, and broken, you are tired, the gospel offers you fresh rest tonight because there is a substitute who has done everything for you to make peace between you and God. And that is an incredibly liberating thing because it sets you free from having to feel like everything that I do, is God smiling on me or is He frowning on me? Is He happy with me or is He displeased with me? Lay your hands tonight on the substitute. That's what this text is reminding us and telling us. The substitute was given for you. His blood was shed for you, so to speak, so that yours didn't have to be. That's what, this, that's what the whole burnt offering is telling us all about. But that's all well and good. As the Bible, though, would continually unfold, we come to a major, massive problem in the book of Hebrews. And this is going to be a bomb. Ready? Read your eye, turn your eyes to the text. The book of Hebrews says this, For it is impossible, though, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now we got a problem. Because it makes it sound like everything I've just been saying so far is null and void. And besides, if you're a Christian, when's the last time you killed a lamb in your church? You hadn't done it. And there's a good reason for that. So we need to make sense of this. Where are we going? And it's now that I actually think that we need to turn to the last problem of sacrifice. And that is what I've called God's problem. What do I mean that God Himself has a problem with sacrifice. Will you all listen? This is incredibly, incredibly good news. The Bible doesn't just tell us that God is a just God who in His holiness must punish sin. The Bible also tells us that from before the beginning of the world, His heart for His people was large. He lavished His love on you, His people, from the beginning of the world in such a way that He looks on you and dotes on you as a husband does his wife. There is an incredible love affair from all eternity because of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit's love for His people. And so now you begin to perhaps see the tension rising, and here it is. How will God remain just and punish sin and how will He still demonstrate at the same time a love for and preservation for His loved ones that are in fact sinners? Do you see the tension? His love and His justice seem to be at odds with one another. How in the world will this be resolved? Does He, one, say, you know what, my justice is not that big of a deal. Sin's not that big of a problem. I love you. If he does, he fails to be God because he has just compromised his justice. He must punish sin. But wait, okay, well, wait. Maybe then he can just be that angry God type that doesn't really love people. But if he does that, he's not demonstrated his great heart and love for you. 
So how in the world will this happen? How will this problem get resolved? And y'all, listen. The answer is what we've been building up to the whole evening long. That God, ready, gave to His people a better substitute, a true substitute who would receive the blow of His justice as an act of great love. And the problem gets resolved in this wonderful substitute named Jesus. You see, the book of Romans says this. Listen what happened on the cross. Romans 3 says this. It says that on the cross, it was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the exact same time that Christ who came, that when He died, he remained, God remained just by punishing sin on Jesus and giving you the love that Jesus merited and earned. You see, Christ is that perfect substitutionary Lamb who spills His blood as a ransom price that sets you free. Listen to what 1 Peter says. This is beautiful. He says this, He says, you were ransomed. You were set free from that awful, terrible wrath that was placed upon you because of your sin. Why? Listen. With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. This is good news, you all. Because it means that all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to found their fulfillment in Jesus on the cross such that this, dear ones, that if you are a Christian tonight, I want you to see that Jesus, His death has secured for you the eternal smile of God. That God no longer holds your sins against you because He held them against Jesus for you. And what this means is the hymn writer John Newton got it right when he said this, that when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles, it is pleased, and it asks no more. No more. God cannot exact any more payment from you. That would not be just of Him. His justice has been satisfied. And all that remains is His love and kindness and mercy to you. So much so, y'all, that the love that exists between the Trinity is the love that God has for you if you are in Jesus tonight. This is incredible, incredible news. And it means, y'all, It means that if He is the true burnt offering, then His blood, His blood means that it has settled once and for all God's displeasure toward your sin such that all that remains is only His smile. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says when he says this. Does it sound familiar? He, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, that is Leviticus chapter 1 language, but by means of His own blood, thus securing for you and for me 
and eternal redemption. At the heart of Christianity, y'all, is a gracious God, listen, who provides the sacrifice that He requires. Let me say that again. At the heart of Christianity is a God who provides in Jesus the sacrifice, the spilling of blood that He Himself requires so that all who are washed and covered in Jesus' blood are now utterly cleansed and set free from His displeasure. And they have nothing left but His total enjoyment. Listen to what John Stott says as we close. John Stott says this, the essence of sin, that horrible problem that we spoke of earlier tonight, is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting Himself for man. I want to say this tonight. This is profound good news. And we are dealing with this very center of Christianity tonight. I want you to see that there is mercy on offer to you tonight. If you've dallied about with Christianity, if you've sort of lived life on the fringes, may I invite you to come to Jesus. Trust Him. Look to Him. Lay your hands on the Lamb tonight because there is mercy for you. True mercy to be had even tonight. I would love, triple love, 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 love it if you would come and talk to me about that if you have questions tonight. If not, it still remains as an invitation. God's mercy is to you because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, This is wonderful news for us. That even in the Old Testament, there is a message of profound mercy and profound grace that comes to us. That Jesus Himself is our pure, spotless Lamb without blemish who has spilt His blood as an innocent Lamb for those that are guilty, for those that are problematic because He loves us so. Oh, would you begin to liberate our hearts in this tonight that we might see the love of God to us in Christ. Lord, we ask this because you are good. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.